When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast. And I'm your host, Nick Peters. And wherever you are and however you are listening, thank you. Quick read from our ad, from our uh, sponsor, QXMD, before we, uh, before we get started today. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based care in clinical practice. So check out Read for easy access to research personalized for you. Calculate. For over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools and learn to earn CME online in minutes per day. Try them today at qxmd.com slash apps. Again, that is qxmd.com slash A-P-P-S. Well, everyone sit back. We are certainly in for a treat today uh, because I'm joined by Craig Beavers and the Cardio King. Now, this is not this is not a nickname that he gave himself. This is a this is a nickname that I have I have given him. Uh, but we are discussing antithrombotic and anticoagulant therapy with cardiac devices. Now, Craig Beavers is a cardiovascular clinical pharmacist with the University of Kentucky Healthcare, the director of cardiovascular services with Baptist Health Paducah, and an adjunct assistant professor for the University of Kentucky College of Pharmacy. He's also the current chair of the American College of Cardiology's Cardiovascular Team Council, amongst his many, many other activities. And not only is Craig one of the most accomplished, intelligent, just overall awesome uh, pharmacist that you will meet, but he is one of my earliest and biggest mentors. I am absolutely not where I am today without him, um, and it's an absolute joy to have him on the pod. Craig, how in the heck are you doing today? I'm doing great, Nick. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here, and I'm uh, feeling a little modest with, with the commentary. I, I don't feel like I deserve any, any of the commentary that you, you just provided, but I think I learned tremendously from you and it's always exciting to see, you know, a trainee go on and do amazing things such as yourself and, and become so accomplished. And, and those are always the most exciting and, and more rewarding aspects of being a part of this community of, of pharmacy and, and the greater good of, of clinical pharmacy from that perspective. So I'm excited to be here and thrilled that you you thought about me. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it's it's something when you have, because um, for, for those who, I'm guessing there's probably tons of people who don't know. So when I was a um, first year resident um, at TriStar Centennial Medical Center in, in Nashville, Tennessee, um, Craig was my mentor and ultimately the, the director of the PGY2 cardiology program there for, for a short period, but that's, that's where our, our paths kind of, um, uh, passed and, and we, we were able to work with each other. And I think when you have really good mentorship or really great people working with you, you feel even more obligated and, and, um, you, you really want to give back to the profession. And I feel like that's, that's part of why I, I have this, um, 
you know, hope and, and being able to give back to some of those things. I think that all started from then. No, I, I guess that it's nice to see, to see people dream and, and come to fruition. So it, this is an awesome experience for the community and it's great to be able to share different knowledge and clinical skills and, and aspects and how people do things. And I think it's amazing we have this avenue. So thank you for doing this. Yes. And we're, we're even trying something new today. So, you know, Craig and I also have more of like the classic Q&A um, towards the end, but the beginning and kind of the bulk of our discussion is going to be more of like case-based. So where, you know, we introduce cases and kind of ask questions or figure out, you know, what we should be doing based on those. So we're always looking to try new things. And I think this is kind of a, a perfect type of topic to, to try it out with. So listeners, as you're going through, if you have feedback, please, this is one where um, any and all would be greatly appreciated as we try this new this new kind of format. So with that being said, let's kind of get started here. So we'll introduce our, our uh, patient here. So MH is a 55-year-old male who presents complaining of, you know, feeling of chest pain. He's confused intermittently and has cold and clammy skin that his um, wife tells us it's been happening for about the past 36 hours. Um, his, preven- his presenting vital signs include a blood pressure of 74 over 44 millimeters of mercury with a heart rate of uh, 120 beats per minute. Now, based on this chest pain, he's in concomitant cardiogenic shock. He was taken to the cath lab. Now, he has he has clean coronaries. They didn't find any type of lesion or anything, and he was subsequently taken to the CCU for further management here. Now, as we introduce MH, mechanical circulatory support is commonly used to help support kind of cardiac function and cardiogenic shock, and we'll discuss many of these in detail throughout the episode. But Craig, what are some examples of mechanical circulatory support devices that we may see used in practice? And when are we typically seeing these used? Yeah, so, you know, there's a wide spectrum of agents that you can use. And depending on the scenario and what you're trying to accomplish, I think classically, if you think about the older or more common agent that you look at, and these are obviously, when you're thinking about uh, supporting cardiac function or, or ventricular function. These are non-pharmacologic agents, clearly, but you're thinking about the intraaortic balloon pump or the IBP has one of those agents on the far end left of the spectrum. And as you progress forth, you think about more uh, contemporary devices such as the impeller, the percutaneous ventricular assist device. Uh, and there's a variety of different iterations of that particular device that allow for different volumes of support uh, in terms of you know, cardiac volumes uh, that is offloaded. You can think about the right ventricular support that they have in, in existing one of their new uh, devices. You can think of kind of the tandem heart device that is available. Um, and then, you know, you can augment or use independently and sometimes in conjunction. You can think about ECMO as another degree of the device. And I'm not sure, I don't think we'll have time to fully get into ECMO, which is a separate loaded topic. Uh, and from that perspective, and then you can move on to, you know, these are agents that you can use to support for an acute stage or, or as a bridge, uh, you know, depending on what the course of the patient is. And then you think more durable ventricular assist devices is, is a separate topic as well. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head with the fact that um, I think ECMO is kind of, we're not going to really talk about that today because that 
that can be and actually already has been a, a previous episode with with Amy Zerba, one of our other colleagues. So for anyone interested in some of that, definitely go back and, and listen. But we'll we'll be focusing, I think, a lot of the on a lot of those kind of devices that you that you named as you were kind of going through some of the progression there. So MH, he's he's coming to the CCU. He's got this cardiac index that ranges from about 1.6 to 1.7 and his past medical history is significant for diabetes and PVD, peripheral vascular disease. And the cardiology team is discussing his cardiogenic shock management, and they're leaning towards placing an intraortic balloon pump or an IABP. So, Craig, how does an IABP work? And are there any relative or absolute contraindications that we would that we would keep in mind um, as we're kind of evaluating the appropriateness of these therapies? Sure. And, you know, obviously it's important as a pharmacist just to have a, a general feel for what these agents do or how they work and what their contraindications are. You know, often we're not immediately the person helping make these decisions, but it can help you understand, you know, is this the right thing to do or how would I treat or do things differently? So the IABP works on the principle of counterpulsation where during left ventricular diastole, uh, a diastole, excuse me, the IBP is inflated, which increases the diastolic pressure. And that helps augment the flow to the coronary arteries in the great vessel. So you, you push, you know, blood uh, into that coronary artery tract, you know, it can help in that particular area to help assist with perfusion. But conversely, during systole, the IBP is deflated, and that creates a void that helps uh, suck out that blood or suck out that volume uh, and offload the heart. And, and so it kind of helps work uh, you know, work through those different pressures uh, and, and remove the left ventricular work and decrease that, that afterload uh, and, and ultimately lower, leads to lower oxygen demand and provides the support. You know, the unfortunate piece, and in, in when we talk about that spectrum, it, you know, we don't get a ton of volume offloaded, relatively speaking, when you think about our other devices. Uh, that's just, you, you know, you're talking about you know, maybe 1.5 ml or, or liter, excuse me, uh, when you think about that. And so, you know, it doesn't provide the, the maximum capacity, but in some instances, it may be all, all that you need uh, from that particular perspective. The historical or the absolute contraindications that occur with this is, you know, if you have really any aortic disease, uh, that is a mostly an absolute contraindication, especially regurgitation. If you have stenosis or stomach stents that are there, um, that can be problematic and, you know, just thinking the mechanism, you can definitely worsen regurgitation and, and that is not advantageous to what you're trying to accomplish or other aortic issues from that perspective. Now, when you think about relative contraindications, a lot of those have to do with some of the historical perspectives of how the, the balloon works. It's clearly, clearly it's a catheter-based therapy. You have a double lumen catheter with a balloon that's attached with helium uh, and a console that kind of works through scanning the the various different uh, you know rhythms in the, the heart process used to determine when to inflate and deflate, uh, and it, it, you know it does that in accordance to kind of what it's sensing. Um, and historically, we had used these giant catheters, and over time, we've gotten uh, away with doing some of those. But historically, if you think about the risk and, and where we're going to go with this, and thinking about some of the pharmacotherapy, is if you have peripheral vascular disease, uh, that can sometimes be problematic uh, simply because you're, you're worried about that thrombotic uh, sequela that can occur with that or an aortic aneurysm. Uh, or if you've had a, a major atrial reconstruction surgery, you don't want to, you know, kind of mess or blow that up. And so that's where 
those are kind of relative, but it clearly the benefit outweighs the risk. And especially since now that we're using, you know, somewhat smaller catheters for the the management, the the risk theoretically would be lower. And that that covers most of the contraindications. And it, and it makes sense a lot of the things you said, like a lot of like an aortic disease or you have big, you know, regurge is that that is going to um, go in direct conflict with kind of the counter pulsation and how the IABP works. So at least mechanistically, it's it's helpful that it all kind of flows and, and makes sense when you understand how these devices work. So yep. are there are there times when a balloon pump would actually be preferred to management compared to other devices? That is a loaded question. And the fun <laughs> things to think about these with these devices is, you know, there's a lot of gray area with them. If you really think about how they were approved and put on the market and the role that they've used and just overall how management strategies have changed, you know, you, you could argumentatively say, you know, when you look at the bulk of the data and, and more contemporary uh, practitioners argue that maybe we shouldn't ever use IBPs, and there is some data that suggests they do not clearly improve mortality. They can actually increase mortality depending on the scenario. But I do think there are some opportunities for, you know, it, it's very common to use. it. People have some familiarity with them, and, and it can definitely be used for in facilities or with patients that, um, you know, you need a little bit of augmentation. You may need to transfer them to a higher level of care. A lot of facilities can be familiar or have used an IBP because they've been around for a long time. Uh, it can be a, a device that's placed at bedside. So I think if you're trying to use it for a, a quick temporizing measure, uh, sometimes in the OR they'll, they'll use them for a, bre a brief time. Uh, and, and a lot of times if you're thinking about you know, some instances when you're not even trying to use it to afterload your heart, but you're thinking about somebody that you're worried about getting myocardial perfusion, that there may be uh, instances where you could use it in that particular perspective. But really when you look at the data, uh, and this probably goes forth with all the devices currently and, and lots of debates about what are their true benefits and costs, that, you know, it's, it's probably not something that you immediately want to in this day and age go go to first but you, you will see see them commonly for the exact reasons i said is that you know a lot of hospitals have them are very familiar with them they're you know relatively inexpensive compared to some of the other devices uh, and they allow you to at least provide some support until you figure out where you're going and what you're doing and it sounds like a lot of these devices and their use may be more driven by anecdotal experience from your physician team, potentially compared to maybe like um, published research or evidence in that same kind of field. Is that is? Would you agree with that? Or you know, I absolutely, back? I would agree with. No, I would agree with you on that. I think you may see some practitioners who have very familiar experiences with the IBP. And, and that may be their go-to from, from that particular reason, you know, I think. Um, or you may have people that come in on them and rather than go through the effort of changing them, depending on what the course of care is going to be, they'll just leave them on them and then, you know, just prioritize that patient sooner rather than later or whatever that may be to, to manage the IBP. So I, I think it's, you know, you look at the totality of evidence, you're like, it doesn't look very 
good for the use of these devices and we still use them, but I think that that's, you know, it's multifactorial why they're still used and, and what could be the reason that is driving that. So it's not as straightforward from, from that particular perspective, but you know, it, it, it's one of those things that as we get better data with other, other strategies, you know, people may defer in, in that particular uh, means. But I think the other thing that we do differently compared to when maybe we used to use them more commonly is we definitely have a better grasp on how to, especially in acute coronary syndrome, how to manage people and take them sooner than rather than later and decrease the risk of having uh, all this myocardial dysfunction in some instances. And, and so, you know, I think overall we've, we've moved in this different trajectory and it's, you know, okay, it used to be we couldn't do a whole lot, right? And so this was a way of, of mitigating some of that. So, and I think that was an important point because I think, especially as you're as you're learning and getting exposed to all these, you know, you may read these studies or or um, kind of review articles saying hmm, maybe it's falling out of favor. But then in your hospital, you're seeing tons of balloon pumps, and it might not add up. So I think that's a a really good right. clarification point, and probably can can. Some of this information, and we'll, we'll cover this as we get to other devices, I'm sure it, it goes over the spectrum of them and is not necessarily limited to just right. a balloon pump. And I, I wanted to, I meant to say, and I, I want to correct something I said, that the cardiac, it supports, obviously, a cardiac index less than 1.5, but it doesn't, it provides about a 0.5 liter per minute per mil. I think I said 1.5, I've got that in, inverse, or it's supposed to be the index. You know, obviously your index is about the 1.5 range, but then it supports 0.5. So you really do need to have some native cardiac output to, to be useful with the IBP. So, so ultimately, the the CCU team kind of agrees that you know, placing a balloon pump may be um, beneficial here. And so after the after the balloon pump is placed, the patient is then ordered. Um, to receive a fixed-dose unfractionated heparin IV infusion. It's going at 500 units an hour, um, kind of a, a fixed low dose. And his APTT is kind of ranged from about 35 to 40 seconds over the past, um, you know, we'll say two to three two to three lab draws with his baseline being, you know, somewhere like 30 to 32. So in patients who are, who are on balloon pumps, what anticoagulation is most appropriate? Is this kind of... Um, low fixed rate of heparin that's not really getting your APTs therapeutic, is that appropriate or should we be really kind of pushing for maybe a, a therapeutic um, heparin infusion? Yeah. So this is one of those areas that is fun to talk about and lots of debate and lots of poor literature to support this. You know, if you think about why we're even trying to use anticoagulation, Clearly, the, the two initial reasons with the IBP around that is, A, the risk of limb ischemia, which more so has to do with, um, as we alluded to, the, the size of the catheter in the balloon and the you know blockage of perfusion that occurs from that. And then, obviously, the, the device itself clearly is not designed to be in the human body and, and touching circulation, and so it's a thrombotic risk in its own right. However, when you really look at the data around the risk of thrombosis, it's, you know, the limb ischemia is very prevalent in the older literature. Um, but then again, as we've started progressing towards lower or smaller catheters, you definitely see an improvement upon that. And the thrombotic rate is not 
all that high. I mean, it's there, um, but you know, when you really look at at, at the, the rate of it, it's it's definitely um, you know in the the five percent. You know, it's not a, a super high, high rate. Um, so then this has brought up all sorts of discussion points around, do we even need anticoagulation? And, I, you know, I think the, the question you're asking, okay, so, you know, unfortunate low rate or therapeutic heparin drip, I think the concern is, is that we, as we get, you know, more around systemic anticoagulation and the risk of thrombotic of, of events versus the risk of bleeding, as you use a higher rate heparin, you're clearly going to increase your risk of bleeding. Now, that's historically what a lot of institutions have done is to put them on some form of uh, anticoagulation, you know, whatever their normal um, protocol would be. Um, you could use a, a lower dose heparin and a lower fixed rate, and that may get away from the risk of bleeding. But then if you're really trying to think theoretically, well, the goal of this is to prevent clotting, and you're never actually getting into uh, therapeutic APTC or, or anything from that range, you're like, well, then what is the purpose of even doing this? And realistically, I think what it all comes down to is, is if the balloon is pumping at a one-to-one rate, meaning it's essentially inflating and deflating with every beat, um, then you really probably don't need anticoagulation. There's data to support that in you know, some of the HIT-based literature and other areas. So you could get away without doing anticoagulation that decreases your risk and benefit in some instances. And if you really look at, there's some great CT surgery data that looks at a low-dose heparin protocol versus no heparin uh, in the post-operative respect, and you don't really see these uh, increases in thrombotic events, and you definitely have lower bleeding events, you could probably get away uh, if you're using it for a period of time of one-to-one of not doing heparin. It's really when you slow the balloon down to one-to-two or one-to-three that your thrombotic risk probably becomes higher and usually when you're doing that you're trying to say okay is, is the balloon ready to be pulled uh, from that perspective and you may have heparin on board when it's running slower but then you just bump it back to one-to-one stop the heparin for two hours and then you pull the balloon at that particular juncture i think that's the important part too is if you're on a heparin drip you've got to stop it for a degree or a period of time before you pull the balloon so i think there are instances especially if you're running at one-to-one and you're worried about bleeding and what's the risk and, and those pieces is it's definitely okay to, to not use anticoagulation. It's not wrong to use anticoagulation. I think it's just harder to look at and say there's good data that supports it. And as more and more literature comes out that maybe it shouldn't be used. Now, albeit the limitations of this literature is always like retrospective, single-centered, kind of either or, or dual centered uh, you know retrospective observational data so you have to take it with a grain of salt so really you're in the this, this gray area and you know if you're a good practitioner you can be savvy enough to argue both ways and, and understand the limitations that you can use it in your <laughs> your favor and against your favor because that's kind of where you're at it's like the one of the biggest gray areas and i think ultimately you're like you know ultimately do we even need to use these devices or what you know what are the complications but i think you know, realistically thinking about the fact that we use smaller catheters, you know, if we run it at one-to-one, the, the overall risk should be a, a lot lower. Now, clearly, if you have somebody who's clearly prothrombotic and they're clotting and, and you see visible clotter, there's things that suggest to you that things are going on, then you definitely want to consider adding anticoagulation therapy. Or vice versa, if you have you know, people with these uh, bleeds around the site and other things like that, 
and you're like, how are we going to manage through this? Because you don't, bleeding has its own consequences. You most certainly feel okay not having heparin on when it's going out one-to-one. Okay. So that, it, I think you did a really good job of kind of explaining it, but ultimately it's really going to come down to the patient and it's going to be a patient specific decision for a lot of these, especially when there's any, any increased risk of either bleeding or kind of thromboses from the patient's perspective. Okay. Well, we, we helped, we helped MH here kind of solve and and answer some of these problems with the, uh, what's with the balloon pump. Now let's kind of introduce a, a new patient PM who has chest pain radiating to his jaw and arm kind of feels like an elephant is sitting on his chest. So his EKG um, shows ST depression. They, they appropriately called a STEMI and he's taken emergently to the cath lab. Now, he's found to be in cardiogenic shock due to this uh, acute myocardial infarction. And in the cath lab, an impella was placed along with two drug-eluting stents. Uh, However, when the patient left the cath lab, um, the impella was still in place because his cardiac index was remaining low in in the neighborhood of, you know, 1.3 to 1.5 liters per minute per meter squared. So, Craig, what is an impella device? And... How does it how does it work? Yeah, so the Impella device is a percutaneous ventricular assist device, and it works similarly to more like a, a durable LVAD, but it's an, a line that consists of an intravascular microaxial microaxial blood pump and a cannula, and, and essentially it works, you know, to remove blood from the left ventricle. Or if you look at the um, Impella RP, it removes it from the right ventricle. But essentially, I think of it, this is not 100%, you know, I think of it like it's a big suction pump that's just sucking out the blood from from that particular perspective. If you're putting it in very simplistic terms uh, to think about that. And so, you know, it's removing them into the ascending, removing the blood into the ascending order of the pulmonary artery, depending on, again, if you're talking about the right, the RP, you're removing it in the pulmonary uh, artery. And you know, you have all these different versions. You have the 2.5, which can do up to 2.5 liters per minute of removing a volume. The CP, which is 3.3 liters, and then uh, 5.0, which typically is surgically placed in the order for uh, kind of a large unloading effect that you need. It so it it all depends on what your output, what you're trying to achieve. Uh, you know, a lot of times we'll use these devices in patients with cardiogenic shock who are needing. Uh, support during PCI or, or surgery, or they'll use it temporarily for these high-risk uh, kind of PCI procedures, uh, uh, CTOs, et cetera. If you, you need some support or augmentation to get them through the, the procedure. Um, and so it, the differences between them all are based on you know where it's inserted. Most of them are, are some inserted in the femoral artery. The 5.0 is, is axillary. Uh, inserted, the volume is different depending on what you need, and then obviously the RP is for your your uh, right ventricle. And in some instances, depending on the patient, what the risks are, you can use a right and a left if you need support from both uh, uh, both areas. And and you you may use this, for example, to bridge patients to something more durable, whether that's heart transplant or a uh, durable LVAD, and, and that's kind of what you kind of think through from from that pers- perspective, thinking about the different impellers. So it's all 
depending on what you're trying to accomplish, what the end game is, how much unloading do you need, you know, what it's, you know, what is the, the difference between the different agents and how they're used? Yeah, I had one of the um, one of the Impella reps when we were at my previous hospital as we were getting these devices, they were having educational things and they described it as a at, at the Impella works as a sub pump for your LV. And I thought that's one of the best descriptions of it because that's it? exactly how I think about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And if you if you haven't got for for anyone who hasn't got a chance to see it, I mean this this Impella device is extremely small, and you I'm, I'm, I guarantee there's YouTube videos where you can see like they put this this motor in like a water bottle or like this big um, kind of area with water, and you see the motor. It's like a boat propeller almost. I mean, it is this thing is no joke in terms of the power that it has. So it's it, for visual people, definitely take a look at some of the YouTube videos to kind of understand what we're, what we're talking about here. Um, now when would the, so you mentioned the Impella, it's, you know, it's almost like a, a percutaneous VAD in a sense. Now, when would you, when would you use the tandem heart, which is a different, form of this when might you use this prefer preferentially compared to like an impella yep so the tandem harp is an extracorporeal centrifugal uh continuous flow pump capable of providing up to four point assisted cardiac output and the nice thing about this device it can be used in both the left or the right side of ventricle for support the cannula is inserted in a femoral vein and introduced into the left atrium by means of a transeptal puncture, and the blood is then pulled from the ventricle into the pump and returned to the systemic atrial circulation via the femoral artery cannula. And because of this unique cannulation, it allows the tandem heart to do some things that the impella can't do. And the impella, for example, is contraindicated due to its mechanism where it's located, and patients, again, kind of like the balloon pump with aortic regurgitation, aortic valve prosthesis, or aortic valve stenosis, or if, this, if there's an LV thrombus present. So if a patient has a big LV thrombus due to their MI in the ventricle, you can't use the impella device from, from that particular perspective. But the tandem heart on alternative, you know, you could use it, you know, in the sense like you could use it like an impella, but the, the benefit for the tandem heart compared to the impella is if you have any of those situations where it's contraindicated to use an impella device, you could use the, the tandem heart because of the way it uh, works to to pull the blood and the, the cannulation process. So it's not contraindicated in those, uh, you know, in those particular sens uh, situations. Um, and it works similarly. It reduces the LV preload, the filling pressures and the wall stress and the myocardial oxygen demand um, and increases mean arterial pressure and cardiac output. So it's similar that it can be used for short-term and cardiogenic shock and to the impella devices. I will tell you some sites may have more familiarity, familiarity or use or access to Impella versus the tandem heart. So I think from a comfortability standpoint, more people may be aware or useful or, or have used a tandem heart. You know, not to be completely, um, to think tandem heart's the, the, the most amazing thing. Um, you know, if you do have, you know, severe peripheral artery disease or, or bleeding risk and, and those things, you know, you know, completely contraindicated in, in that particular instance. And you, like I said, even though you can use it with, um, 
you know, a clot in the LV, if you have an left atrial thrombus, you, you can't use it there. Or if you have a, a VSD, a ventricular septal defect, it, it's kind of contraindicated in those particular instances. And I would still not, you know, why you maybe theoretically can get away with it in the aortic regurgitation setting. It's pretty severe aortic regurgitation. I would definitely think twice immediately before doing it. Again, we're lucky as pharmacists, we don't have to make these decisions per mm -hmm. se. Um, but that's kind of where the, the differences are. That's, it's kind of a perfect lead in because so the impella is in place in PM and he additionally, right. He, you, you come to the bedside and you're, you're talking to the nurse and you realize that he's receiving unfractionated heparin and dextrose in 20% water D20W in the purge fluid with an additional 400 units of IV systemic heparin infusing. Now, for those who maybe have not used an Impello before, that might have been a little bit of a foreign language, what we just talked about. So, Craig, what is the purge fluid for these patients, and why are we using dextrose and unfractionated heparin in this purge fluid? Yeah, so obviously a couple of reasons. One is the... Um, the device clearly it's a motor and if you think about any type of uh, motor like your engine or a car you you have to do things to protect the the engine of that motor and so this dextrose based purge solution it, it flows uh through the impella for a couple things and it works in the opposite uh, direction of the patient's blood flow it tries to create a pressure barrier a to prevent blood from coming into the impella so you don't get blood and clotting going on the motor uh, from that particular perspective. But the dextrose also helps, helps coat it and prevent breakdown. It, you, know, you, you can't really use sodium-based products because it actually has been shown to demonstrate deterrence or, or cause problems with, with the motor. So you have to use the dextrose solution to, to not only protect but to prevent the breakdown. But the, the anticoagulation there is to, to create this. The anticoagulation is there to prevent if there were blood to get into the, the chamber, it would prevent thrombosis. But the, the dextrose and the anticoagulation, the solution, the purge solution is there. It creates that barrier to try to pre prevent that from, from happening. Um, and so that's kind of what the overall function of this is. And, you know, there's a built-in pressure sensor device that helps us. It automatically adjusts that purge flow, and it can be anywhere from 2 to 30 mils per hour to maintain the, the pressure it needs, which is about 300 to 1,100 millimeters of mercury. And so it, it, it kind of, you know, moves that to keep, you know, the patency there and, and prevent that blood from going in, into the motor. And it's not there, that particular piece of anticoagulation is not there to provide a systemic anticoagulation. Again, like you think about with the IVP and any of these devices you put in, there still is a risk of thrombosis that you may get from having a device that is not supposed to be there. But this particular anticoagulation is there to really protect that, that motor. And the interesting thing is, you know, you mentioned the, the E20, uh, the, the dextrose concentration helps dictate the viscosity and the flow rate of the purge solution. And, you know, if it's a lower dextrose concentration, that means less viscosity and there's quicker flow through the purge, which the, that is theoretically a good thing, but it can also lead to more heparin exposure. Um, and so at the, 
the current moment, the deck, the manufacturer has recently changed, and this is a fun case to, to think about and look at. They recommend you know D five twenty five units uh, per per heparin for now, um, and that was a recent change as of February of this past year. Um, and, and part of that's just to kind of minimize that risk of overexposing patients, but also realizing that you don't need as much dextrose to, to, to be helpful from a protecting standpoint. That is interesting because I think most of us have our standard heparin being 50 to 100 units per ml. So kind of going away from that standard premixed um, based on that. That is, that, that is interesting. I didn't know about that recent change. Yeah, it's um, they 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 snuck it in there. Of course, uh, you know if you really think that was right before we had all of everything that's <laughs> going on in the world related to not that they were trying to do it in this particular you know juncture of time, but that was right when things were starting to get crazy when that kind of release went out from from that particular standpoint uh so i'm not sure if i think they're trying to get it out there and and let people know that those changes have have uh, occurred but just kind of be aware that they have recently changed that it should be uh 25 units per mil in the purge solution of the, the d5 so yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't seem like it's a like a Friday news dump where they put that out there trying to uh, to have people overlook it. I agree. It's just a victim no, of circumstance. I, I will tell you, I've had lots of conversations with the manufacturer, and they actually really want. And it behooves them to do this. They really want to make sure that people understand and support and have reason behind what the safety of the anticoagulation aspects are, you know, and again, it behooves them because it makes their device safer, but they've actually spent a lot of effort trying to understand where the pitfalls are from the anticoagulation perspective and, and how do we improve them or how do we make people aware of them? But I think the, the struggle with this is, is there's a lot of hospitals that use these devices that don't have, you know, clinical specialists or people that have been trained in, cardiovascular disease or critical care, uh, you know, or, or, you know, there are, you know, pockets of the United States where they haven't infiltrated, you know, these types of folks and, and not even not saying people that work in a, a central pharmacy or, or, or have done just PGR1 aren't knowledgeable on that. That's not the, the piece at all. It's just when you don't deal with them regularly and meaning what I, I mean by that is like if your hospital is only putting in, one a month or one every other month or, you know, it's just, it's harder to have that familiarity. And so they spend a lot of time, they're, you know, trying to educate and make people aware of all the things that need to be tied to this. So. Well, yeah, it's just a little bit different, right? It's not like you're just getting asked a question about a standard heparin drip for someone with a DVT, right? This is somebody who they've, they've got other things. It's, it's more of a complicated process and issue. And so, you know, risks, risks uh to the patient if if you're randomly getting asked questions and you're not right high high risk low utilization kind of procedure or interventions can be can be the um trickiest and even if you are trained and you're at a site that aren't using them regularly it seems there's still risk there it's just you know making sure that you have the familiarity and what 
what goes into them. And, 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 and I will say they have developed some great resources to help people practice cases and do things and think about them and, and so forth. So, uh, you know, they are trying to figure out a way to make it safe from that perspective. So, so my, my experience with Impella's, um, is that the, with the previous, um, when you would use the, you know, either 50 or 100 units per ml, is that the APTTs generally tended to be a little higher and you would have to cut the concentration of the heparin and the purge. But I think another question that may come up is for some patients is that, you know, they have the heparin in the, in the, in the purge solution, right? And you're monitoring mm-hmm. um, the APTTs or, or however you're monitoring that. We'll talk about that in just a second. But say it's running really low and you're, we're, we're concerned that, that our APTTs aren't getting up. So we want to maybe start some systemic heparin in addition to that purge. So how do we go about, like, obviously we don't want to just start our therapeutic rate, but how, so how do we go about trying to figure a, a starting kind of concentration? Do we have any tips or tricks for that? Yeah, so I, I mean, I think this is kind of one of those areas Um that also, like we alluded to, it's not that it's a gray area. The manufacturer provides some guidance in terms of the fact that obviously, you know, you should probably, uh, you know, still have some form of systemic anticoagulation if for some reason they're not low body weight, you're not getting enough heparin via the purge solution. Again, that the purge is not designed to provide systemic anticoagulation, but some people end up getting some in the system that does lead to them being systemic. But, you know, you do need to have some anticoagulation on board, given that you're having this device. And just to briefly talk about the risk of thrombosis, when you look at the data for that, it is also hard to grasp what the true rate of thrombosis is with these devices. And they're all over the board because, you know, when these devices have been improved, the the kind of major point of the study was not around how much thrombosis they were having. And, of course, they've looked at safety in those types of things, but that again was not well defined. It's not consistent in what they were looking at and those types of things. So, you know, we just know that there's a risk of thrombosis and it can vary anywhere depending on what literature you're looking at can be anything from, um, you know, you know, case reports of 11 to up to 17 to somewhere in 30, you know, it just very depends on what the data source that you're looking for. And so, you know, you really want to have some some anticoagulation on board to prevent some of those things if, if possible uh, if you're having some of the bleeding. So, obviously, we talked about, you know, how do you pick a rate? Well, clearly, um, when you put the device in, they recommend giving an intravenous bolus of heparin starting at the insertion, you know, trying to get your activated clotting time and an ACT at the time of 250 seconds or longer. And, you know, if they got glycoprotein 2B3 inhibitor, uh, it should be 200 seconds or longer. And then the manufacturer recommends after insertion, if they are needing or immediately afterwards uh, needing systemic heparin, they, they recommend that you start and have a protocol that's 100, you know, targets an ACT of 160 to 180 seconds. And that's what the manufacturer recognize, recommends or recognizes. But of note, they also recognize and realize a lot of people don't use ACTs as their normal monitoring parameter and so they'll use either APT or anti-10A and this is where it starts going downhill from what do you do and, and how do you do this and what is the way that you do it and the appropriate way to manage or, you know I think a lot of people will use their, their normal heparin based protocols now this is where 
you got to be careful about what is your concentration of your heparin and the concentration of the purge solution and really looking at those types of things from a safety perspective. Um, and, and this is where it really goes into what are your systems of care, the processes of safety, and, and what do you, how can you value that and for it to be the most safe for you and the nursing staff and everyone involved. But I think the, the general point is you need to have a protocol in place that will help you target whatever you're going to target and defining what that target is going to be and being consistent with it in terms of, all right, we're going to target an APTT at this, and we're going to be consistent at this, and we're going to start a systemic heparin at a full dose from that particular standpoint, and, you know, we'll do this. I think the key is, is if you're getting some systemic heparin, you know, if you're ACT or, or you're getting some degree of heparin from the purge solution, you need to subtract that vol- that rate from whatever your, your normal protocol processes are. So, if, for example, if you happen to be somewhere on your, your protocol and they're getting, um, you know, 12 units, especially getting 12 units from, you know, heparin and you're getting X amount from the purge, you need to remove that, that purge amount from what your systemic level is going to be to kind of adjust just for that uh, to think that's the best thing to do. And again, the nice thing is the company has developed worksheets to help people with this from a nursing perspective. There's an app now that they have to allow people to say, okay, here's what my heparin is that, you know, here's what my heparin in the purge is. Here's where I need to get to. What should I subtract out from this to, to understand what, what rate I should be running my heparin drip at? Uh, from, from that particular perspective, trying to try to eliminate the bleeding risk. And I think that's where if you don't make those adjustments, you compound the amount of heparin the patient's getting, and that increases their risk for bleeding from that particular perspective. Um, and so that's a pretty consistent message. I think the question that you alluded to is, do you do a low-rate low, you know, low low heparin versus a high-rate? And you know, a little bit of that gets into what you monitor and your target ranges for those. And that's a whole separate load of question about these anti-10A or APTT. Like I said, the manufacturer recommends ACT. Some people are using anti-10A. Some are using APTT. You know, there's not a good defined answer to this question. And as you probably talked about in your ECMO podcast and so forth and looking at that, you know, some of the same issues that you have with ECMO in terms of coagulopathy and other things that occur you can have that happen with the Impella device, so it makes it complicated to determine what is the best strategy to use, or you should you use multiple different strategies, because we know anti-10A definitely measures the heparin effect for, from that particular perspective. Um, however, I think the more important piece is whatever you do, you need to be consistent um, and, and you know, have people understand it and, and do the training from, from that particular standpoint. You know, there's some data that shows if you use a lower anti-10A that, you know, you which correlates with the lower APTT range that you had more people in the therapeutic range and you didn't see thrombosis, but there was still a decent amount of bleeding. So it may not be just related to the antitonia. I think it goes to the variability and the, the tests that we use and how we measure them in those pieces. I think the, the more important piece is, is being consistent and being cognizant and, and the whole team being cognizant of how much heparin they're getting both between the purge and in the infusion and kind of, you know, monitoring where those pitfalls can be. So it's one of those things you definitely can't just set it and forget it and just be like, okay, we'll just see how this is going to go. You, you have to kind of really be paying attention 
and that's where my lessons are for that. (laughs) And it sounds like you, because if you've been uh, keeping up with, with cardiac and anti-coag literature, there's been fierce debates over anti-10As versus APTTs and the strengths and limitations of, of all of those. And it sounds like what I'm hearing is that you, you have not been hiding the answer from all of us. You are in the same no, place that I, we are, that we were trying who, to figure this all out. Whoever figures that out will be the, the most, um, you know, not, I don't, you know, we will be very well regarded. And again, I think there is no, unfortunately there's, no perfect test and that's mm-hmm. kind of the, the problem and maybe it's these multiple strategies but I, I think it really just takes people realizing that you have to have some some high touch with them and, and which is great because this is what pharmacists love to do is like okay we have drug therapy we can monitor how do we make adjustments what can we do to prevent them what are the things that put them at risk and so I think that that's probably just as or more important than you know exactly what are the testing because we we know they all have limitations and and those the situation for the patient is ever changing depending on how long the device is in and what's going on with the patient and things that can impact or affect each of those things so it's it's not just a static situation now what do we do if a patient has hit can we use can we use you know something like a direct thrombin inhibitor in the purge fluid Yes, yeah, so that also is a fun area of debate because the manufacturer has not studied or evaluated using um, a per you know a BTI or a direct thrombin inhibitor in the purge solution. Now there is lots of case reports and literature that suggest that you could use argastroban or bivalirudin that appears for a, a reasonable duration that uh, it appears to be safe. Now the problem there is, is we're talking about case reports or case series. So, you know, a limited number. So we don't really know what the true answer of that is. And they currently recommend, and this is where it always has, you know, it's a hard pill to swallow, no pun intended for pharmacists, is when they have hit, they recommend that you run the purge solution without any heparin remaining with the dextra solution. And then you use your systemic anticoagulation via the correct thrombin inhibitor and that's where it's a little hard when you're like so you're telling me when i don't have hit i have to put pepper in the purge solution and do all these things that put me at risk for um anticoagulation issues there but then as soon as i have hit i don't have to have it in there um and, and again i think these are things yeah i think these are things that you know the good news is i, I think again having asked these questions to various different impeller reps throughout my career and, and other people doing the same, I think that they're realizing, you know, how do we work together to, to figure this out and, and think through this? So I think, you know, I think that there's going to be some things coming down the line that will help clarify some of these, these points. Um, but at the moment, the recommendation is not to put a DTI in there. And again, there are literature, there is literature that supports doing this and they'll even provide you a, a nice letter that tells you about that literature uh, from, from that standpoint, um, you know, that you can do it. It's just, uh, and then there's even literature about, again, not running a purge, just doing the purge itself with no heparin. Uh, and it seems to be okay. Again, a lot of these things have limitations that they're single case centers, but, you know, I think really when you're thinking about what is 
I always think about it. What is the duration of the device that we're going to be doing this for? How much longer we're going to be using the device? And, you know, clearly with, if it's head or you're suspecting, suspicious of it, you have to anticoagulate them because, you know, it's a thrombotic event. So you clearly you're going to put that systemic anticoagulation on board, whether it be bivalve or, or heparin, but then, you know, you've got to really think about, okay, how much longer am I going to be using this device? If it's going to be a while, then do I really want, you know, do I, maybe do I consider putting in, you know, heparin the purge solution, or excuse me, uh, a DT on the purge solution. If it's going to be a short term, you know, maybe I can get away without doing it long enough uh, from that perspective. I think the, the big thing is, is paying attention to, to those things and what's happening to the device and, and how you need to adjust course as it's being seen. So great, great review and kind of discussion on some of our RM Pella key points there. Now let's kind of shift gears here. We got a we got a new patient coming in, uh, CP. She's a 64 year old female. She has a HeartMate LVAD as a bridge to transplant for ischemic cardiomyopathy, and the team approaches you saying that they're concerned that CP is experiencing hemolysis. So when specifically in in LVAD patients, does hemolysis indicate that? Anything else maybe more concerning might be happening? Uh, so that's a, a great question. And hemolysis, you know, is very critical in, in things that we think of with our left ventricular assist devices. And we often are immediately jump to pump thrombosis. But you got to think there could be other factors that could be leading to hemolysis. You know, it could be dehydration or an underfilled left ventricle, which kind of increases your inlet velocities. It could be synodic or regurgitant. Uh, valves, native or prosthetic, that creates some high jet velocities, or it could be if they've recently gotten transfusion, transfusions or other issues or other things. Uh, it could be you know, transfusion-related immune or non-immune mediated hemolysis. So it doesn't necessarily immediately mean that that could be the case. Now, typically what we look for in labs is, to maybe indicate hemolysis is you, know, you look at uh, your your LDH, but also look at your haptoglobin and, and kind of looking at that particular piece. Now, and so that's kind of the lab that we can use in, in conjunction, but then you would also look at other things that would maybe go in conjunction with that, um, you know, looking at the clinical presentation. Do they feel unwell? Or do they complain of fatigue? Are there alarms or device alarms or changes in the pulsatility index or increase in pump power? Uh, that could be triggering things. So it's not just looking at the labs, but looking at the picture of the, the patient or their new heart failure. You know, what are the things that are going on that, you know, really could be um, important from that perspective? Uh, you know, I also want to look at bilirubin, your total bilirubin and your hematic rate hemoglobin. And then obviously things that you're, you're, you're looking at that could be uh, problematic you know, your INR and things that you want to, to, to put in context. So those are some things you want to kind of look at. So does our management, because one of the, um, you know, biggest concerns is like to potentially the, like a thrombosis, right? With the, with, with mm -hmm. potentially hemolysis. So if, if that occurred in, any patient who has kind of more of like a chronic type of LBAD, like a bridge to something like a potentially, whether it's destination transplant, what have you, does our management differ based on the type of VAD they have, or is it more 
of a kind of universal approach. They have a VAD. The type that the, the type of VAD they have is maybe less important, and we kind of manage it with these specific principles. Or does it really depend on the type that they have? I, I mean, I think for the most part, generally speaking, it's uh, pretty universal in terms of what your strategies are. Um, you know, trying to troubleshoot what you think the problem is you know, kind of why you think that is occurring. I will tell you when it comes to, you know, using agents to, if there is truly a problem, you can confirm the thought you're suspicious that there is a clot there. You know, there's very little data in terms of, you know, what is the best cocktail in terms of um, troubleshooting this, whether you use TB3 inhibitor, whether you use uh, lytics, you know, whatever that may be, clearly you, you got to put them on some form of anticoagulation or increase the intensity of anticoagulation, and that might help as well. Uh, and so it's kind of troubleshooting those, but ultimately if it's a, a, a large enough burden, the probably, unfortunately, the most optimal way to manage this is to remove the device and implant a new one. Um, and you can only do that so many times, you know, and that's really determining, okay, if I remove this, should they go ahead and get surgery? Can we get them listed higher? Whatever that may be. Um, but I think universally, you, you troubleshoot it and say, do I think this is a clot? What factors support thrombosis? What things can I do? And again, a lot of these are kind of to help you either, if you're using anticoagulation, either to see if it will help clear it up quickly. And if not, uh, you know, what are my next steps going to be? And you really ought as well, if you are trying to use something, think about where your next steps are going to be, whether the device needs to come out or if they get listed differently or that, that standpoint. Now, later in CP's kind of admission here, she has an acute drop in her hemoglobin and with the concern that she now has an acute upper GI bleed. Now, we'll kind of do the exact 180 of what we just asked, um, you know, does our management of bleeding for LVAD patients, are, does that change compared to how we might normally treat an acute upper GI bleed? Are we maybe more conservative with, with the device being um, implanted in these patients? Yeah, so I think, uh, you know, in, in general, generals and, and not going in depth of this, you clearly do not want to, you know, the, the knee-jerk reaction in a lot of the bleeds that you have with a patient without LVAD is to, you know, remove the sending agent, you know, stop their anticoagulation, you know, reverse it or do anything like that. I think in this instance, you know, you, you have to look at, are there ways that I can uh, kind of, you know, provide that supportive nature for the patient, whether that be, you know, transfusion, those pieces, is there, are there things that, they're not currently getting that I could use to temporize or, or you know, uh, fix the measure, whether that's, you know, doing a proton pump inhibitor infusion for the short period of time, figuring out do they need, if they're on high-dose aspirin, do they need lower-dose aspirin, do they need longer-term therapy to, to prevent this going down the line. You know, further down the line, there's data that suggests that ACE inhibitors can prevent uh, or reduce GI bleeds, but in the acute care setting, you know, you can't immediately reverse it because you're going to put them at risk of um, thrombotic events and, and those types of things. So you, you got to try to troubleshoot it while you are pro providing that supportive care uh, for the patient, you know, doing what you would do in a lot of other contexts of 
managing a, a GIB or an issue, but then you're not, again, trying to, to salvage some of the anticoagulation effect. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it sounds like, you know, if it got to the point where we felt that we got pushed between a rock and a hard place and we had to do, we had to administer some sort of reversal, I feel like you, it would be the realm of a low, much lower fixed dose. We can always give more and kind of try to do the Correct. smallest doses to help. Kind Absolutely. Of cessate the serve brain. it if it's possible. And I think you have to have very clear intention what your goals are going to be and where you're going to go. If you're reversing the anticoagulation and, and you know, you if you can manage it without or, or doing, that's what you, you got to do. And again, there's no like one answer for all these situations, but if you're going to reverse it, you know, low, don't put them at risk of thrombosis. What are the next steps going to be? You know, is that going to be, are they going to, to surgery to get their device replaced? You know, or, you know, mm-hmm. which wouldn't happen acutely in NG, I believe, but it's really thinking about what are my next steps going to be if I do this? And now we have clotting, you, you know, and, and thinking about that, but I think it's being very cautious if you can do things to manage or mitigate it without completely stopping the anticoagulation or, or you can reduce the intensity of doing something for the period of time. Uh, but then obviously adding up things that you're not doing and, and what can you do to prevent it and those types of things. It's just, it's a, it's a real balance and struggle. So. I mean, it really thinks it, I, I think of it similarly to kind of how we manage, um, bleeding or those types of things in patients who have like mechanical mitral valves, right? That is our last, reversing it is our last line solution. It's, it's what we want Correct. to try to avoid. And it sounds like maybe not as, maybe not as, at the, maybe not the same risk, but it's still ultimately we want to avoid that at all possible. Perfect. Yes. It's, it's not, I'm not saying it's, it's off the table, but it is not the first thing that I'm reaching for. Um, <laughs> You know, and the other things you can do is like think about, you know, blood pressure control and, and just kind of looking at those things and, and doing endoscopic treatment and, you know, the other things that you can add are, you know, octreotide. You know, I think there's a whole pathway of things you can look at and think through um, to add and prevent and try to, to stop the bleed. You know, if you don't have octreotide, desmopressin, those types of things. And there's even some data with salonamide and so forth, and not to go in the full semantics of, of all these, but I think where you're going for is like, okay, do I reverse it? And you really want to not do that um, unless it's super life-threatening, right? Like it is like clearly the risk outweighs, or the benefit of reversing it outweighs the risk. And so, you know, you're troubleshooting, you're doing, okay, have I done my PPI? Have I done my... Um, you know, have I provided the supportive care and the transfusion? Do I need to do something else like octreotide or, or desmopressin? Do I need to go down the, the route of acetylamide? Long term, are we going to put them on an ACE or do I need to change my intensity? Do I need to drop my aspirin? And then again, ultimately, if it's a life threatening bleed, and you know, you're going to have to do that, that that's what you're going to do. 
So our, our next patient on our, this has been a busy day on service, I guess yeah, you know, we're recording sure. this on a Monday. So it, it's a, it's a, it's a typical Monday. It seems like, but, um, KJ, she's a 74 year old female. She's got a, a recent diagnosis of atrial fibrillation and she has a CHADS2 VAS score of three. So she's, she's female, she's 74 and she has a past medical history for, um, of hypertension and, She's looking to avoid long-term anticoagulation because, in, in her words, she doesn't want that rat poison. I think all of us who have ever been in a Coumadin clinic have probably heard some yeah. of those phrases before. Um, so we're looking for a long-term um, strategy here that doesn't necessarily involve anticoagulation. So kind of building off of, of KJ's case here, when would we look to use um, Watchman devices? Yeah, so if you aren't familiar with the Watchman device, the Watchman is a left atrial appendage occluder device. It is not designed, if you are or are not aware, that atrial appendage is thought to be um, a large area of, or large area within the atria that where there's a large risk of clotting that we think of in atrial fibrillation that leads to the, the clotting of the stroke that we see. Um, you know, the problem that is outlined here is this device is, it's had a very interesting history in terms of its approval process and, and the two trials that were used and the risk of stroke. And, uh, you know, and I think part of that is the, the risk that we originally saw in the early trials was partially due to people learning how to use the device and put it in. And as we've gotten better at that and had success rate, you know, some of those risks have decreased. Um, but ultimately, the, the device was approved on the FDA, and essentially it has a very specific um, outline of what the approval for this is. And that's essentially for people who can't tolerate warfarin specifically or for their atrial fibrillation reduction due to concerns about the risk of bleeding. Um, and so, you know, if you really leave the, the specific or read the specific labeled indications for to reduce the risk of thromboembolism and the left atrial appendage and non-valvular atrial fibrillation or an increased risk of stroke or systemic embolism, so that's a CHADS2 vaccine greater than three or CHADS2 greater than four, who meet the criteria for anticoagulation, who are suitable for warfarin but have appropriate reasons for seeking non-pharmacologic alternatives. So clearly they've had falls or risk of falls. They may have... It's a little weaker indication for patient patient preference uh, per se, but they have clearly a high risk of, of these these thrombotic events, but definitely an equally high risk of bleeding um, from that particular perspective. And so that's kind of who the device is targeted for, for to to be used, and that's when we kind of look to use it. And so usually, a lot of times when you look at documentation to get it paid for from CMS or, or other organizations, you have to really provide a clear reason why they have failed anticoagulation. And sometimes that includes, have you tried a direct acting, direct acting oral anticoagulant because the risk of bleeding is substantially lower uh, with those comparatively. And there was a recent trial that looked at, you know, direct acting agents compared to the watchman and found, you know, overall there, there were non-inferior to each other uh, in terms of that. And, and clearly there is, you know, kind of a lower bleeding risk with the, the Watchman device, but that's over a period of time and, and kind of looking at that. And, uh, you know, so 
uh, and that trial wasn't designed specifically to look at the, the long-term bleeding risk per se. It was more designed to say, well, from a thrombotic effect, are they, they non-inferior? But clearly the, the key is if they can't tolerate uh, anticoagulation therapy for whatever reason, and there's a huge risk, then you know, Watchman may be a suitable alternative after kind of that discussion. But I definitely would not, in her instance, I would want her to consider risk benefits and not immediately jump to the Watchman. Because it is a device, you do have to still do anticoagulation, warfarin for 45 days afterwards, um, and then you know an aspirin regimen as well. So it doesn't completely absolve you from anticoagulation for a period of time. Uh, and so, again, it is a device that we put in that has risk. I think that's an important point is that it doesn't, in, in the short term, you're still using anticoagulation. It may just potentially be a, a, a solution for some patients more, more long-term. Um, right. Now, is there, there's a very kind of specific anticoagulation regimen that's, mm-hmm. that's FDA approved for the Watchman devices. Um, is there any evidence for non-warfarin-based anticoagulation regimens here, or are we focused on kind of our vitamin K antagonists? Right. So it was studied to do aspirin 81 milligrams daily plus warfarin for at least 45 days, as we alluded to, with an iron arm 2 to 3. And ultimately, at 45 days around that point, you do a TEE, and if there's no paradevice leak, you know, a large leak or anything that's there, then they go on DAP for for six months. And then after that six months, you go on high-dose aspirin uh, at that particular juncture. When, you know, obviously, I alluded to trials comparing DOAC to the agent, the, the watchman itself, but then alternatively looking at um, a DOAC agent instead of warfarin, that data is there, it's just very small or weak, and it's retrospective, and, you know, I wouldn't immediately advocate for it unless there's a strong reason to, to do that at this particular juncture, and, you know, there's... Uh, Data is all across the board in terms of which DOAC to use, for example. So it's not clearly been like they only have looked at this particular agent or that particular agent. And just as a side note, the reason that we're even doing this is because like most devices, you have a risk of device-based thrombosis. It's clearly the highest in, in the first 45 days. Interestingly enough, that is based on a dog model where we get that 45 days from. So we actually don't really know if the human model is greater than 45 days, you know, we just are extrapolating, say, well, in the dog model, about 45 days, it appeared to be to the point that it was endothelialized enough that we don't see the risk of thrombosis. So we've never really seen in a human model what the true rate of that is. We're just extrapolating based on this dog model and say, well, 45 days is what that was. So we'll just kind of go from here uh, and use it from that particular perspective. But the, the function of this is to all you know, decrease that risk. And then obviously there's, you know, operational-based procedures that increase your risk of thrombosis. And that's where, you know, we look for the paradigm leaks and those types of things to, to kind of help heal over. And, and as we've gotten better at doing the, the cases and the procedures, as I alluded to, you know, some of that risk has gotten minimized or decreased uh, over time. But then, you know, clearly people have tried to look at, okay, can we use a direct acting agent to reduce the risk of device thrombosis um, instead of uh, using warfarin. Or, for example, when patients may have thrombotic effects and they're still with warfarin or they can't keep them controlled, uh, can we use 
uh, you know, a direct acting agent. And yeah, like I said, it's been studying two retrospective analysis that looked at kind of the first three months post implant. They were all the different no act agents that you can think of: the Bigatran, Ron Roxanne, and Pixaman. You know, about thirty to forty percent. You know, thirty. 5% on Rob Rocks now, 43 on the Bigatran, 21 on the Pixaman. Um, you know, the traditional AFib dosing that you normally think of uh, in all these patients. And the, the overall rate was low, 1.3%, and there's no risk of stroke. You know, 1.3% risk of device-related thrombosis, none of those turned into stroke. And the bleeding rate was low. And you see that in one study. In another study, you see kind of like the very similar rate and very low uh risk of bleeding and then you put this in the context of the prog trial which the prog again compared doac to fhro appendage which is a completely different study so in this particular instance you know if you have a risk or they need one you could theoretically do it it's just not currently approved that way in the labeling uh, so you really have to consider who the patient is what you're going to do and monitor that from that particular perspective even as someone who who thinks they're extreme, you know, this is a pro dog podcast here. The listeners, yeah. I've, I've let them know. E- even me, I, even I, uh, I'm a little taken back at uh, using dog models to to do that. But some, sometimes when you, you sometimes you uh, ignorance can be bliss with some of these things. Once you actually find out where where some of this info um, kind of comes or is derived yeah. from. <laughs> so. so our, we'll kind of wrap up our, our case-based questions here, and we have a couple kind of potpourris towards the end. But um, So TW is, a, is an 80-year-old male. He has severe aortic stenosis. He was deemed a non-surgical candidate, so he just underwent a TAVR um, and received the sapien heart valve. Now, his follow-up echo is concerning per the interventional cardiology team. So... After a TAVR procedure, transcatheter aortic valve replacement, what are common adverse effects that, um, especially in inpatients, in the short time that they're typically here that we kind of look for and monitor for? So obviously you alluded to one of those, and that's thrombosis. You know, you obviously always worry about bleeding events. Stroke is very common early on uh, in the thrombotic field, if you're thinking about that. And that's usually... Early on, what you see in terms of stroke is not necessarily a, a full ischemic standpoint of like, oh, they've, you know, what you see you know, is they're clot on the device and those types of things. Typically, the stroke you're seeing is all procedural related. As you, you know, manipulate the valve and put it in there, you break off material and it, you know, moves through the pathways towards, uh, you know, the head and, and blocking the carotids and those types of things. So, you know, early on, you see that kind of thrombotic risk from that standpoint, uh, and that's typically what you see. And then alternatively, you see the traditional things that you would see from a normal catheter-based procedure, uh, you know, femoral site bleeding, access site bleeding, um, risk of tamponade, and those types of things. So, the, you know, if you really think it's your, your thrombotic risk that you typically see early on in a catheter-based procedure, um, and then your bleeding-type access site risk. So this may be the question with the that's maybe the hottest topic or there may be the kind of the most debate about um but in taver patients what's our preferred thrombosis prevention regimen what will you commonly see patients receiving after this procedure and so 
you know, after procedure, you're definitely being a loaded question as well and lots of gray area. Currently, the recommendation is to do dual antifluid therapy for, for three to six months afterwards. Uh, the core valve did three months, the saving valve did six months, uh, and then afterwards you, you drop down to an aspirin-only regimen. Now, that data was you know, clearly extrapolated from our sending data because if you think about TAVR valves, it's a valve like we think of a bioprosthetic valve, but it's on the frame of like a, a stent, a cardiac stent. And so that's where that kind of piece is, have, has gone from. Now we've tried to figure out the best way to manage this because we do know that there is some, you know, what we call, um, it's essentially like a, a microthrombus uh, that is kind of a hyperaggregation type phenomenon. They call it HALT um, that occurs with these TAVR valves uh, that put people at, theoretically you would think would put people at an increased risk of clotting. Um, however, we're, we're not clear whether that is true or not. Um, you know, the, the other risk behind that is not just, uh, you know, and when I think say clotting, the risk of stroke is what you're worried about is okay. Does this cause you or put you at predisposed risk for, for stroke, but the halt also puts you at risk for, you know, could the vice clot off, right? And that's probably more problematic. Well, they're all problematic. Uh, so this hypoattenuating leaflet thickening or halt that I was referring to, you know, it could be problematic because, yes, that could break up kind of stroke. It could also be problematic in the sense that, you know, you don't want the device to complete thrombose. However, a lot of times, you know, we see this development of halt. We've not elucidated in the data whether that truly leads to problems down the road. And a lot of times when you treat them with anticoagulation therapy or something like that, it actually removes that halt or decreases in, in, from that standpoint. But currently, we're using ADAPT mostly around the stent thrombosis concept or around, you know, protecting the stent. Not sure what the valve is. However, any data we've looked at using anticoagulation has not turned out to be positive. And that's mostly with uh, patients uh, who got DOAX. So we know currently the one trial we have, the Galileo trial with DOAX with rivaroxaban, did not show actually a benefit of doing the agent actually potential harm or increase more death. Now, ironically enough, there was, it was all non-valvular disease-related mortality, so we have some questions there. Um, but a sub-study where they looked at the echoes, it did show that the Zeralto or the Rivaroxaban reduced the risk of that leaflet thickening of that thrombosis. So at the moment, we're not clear if, if you know, DOAX are of value uh, we definitely know triple therapy is not helpful, like we've already seen in a lot of those instances. What is interesting is we have data that suggests that doing single antiplatelet therapy is maybe of benefit uh, by itself. And there's trials to, these are all retrospective data, there's trials ongoing to better elucidate if that is true. Um, most of our data has been with clopidogrel. We don't have a lot of data with our newer P2I12 inhibitors, so it's kind of subject or relegated to that. Not that you couldn't use them, but they all have more increased bleeding risk that can go in that direction. And then we have the newest data that suggests in patients with AFib who are, you know, have other reasons to clot that maybe warfarin is better by itself versus doing the warfarin and the clopidogrel uh, of ADAPT therapy in that particular perspective. And so 
I think we're learning more and more about the different strategies. And so at the moment, the best thing to do is maybe DAP if they don't have any other indications. And then if they do have indications from an AFib perspective, you might be able to get away with a, a VK, VKA from an INR2 to 3 from, from that particular perspective. And so think, it, the, the point of that message is it's all over the board currently, and there's a lot of trials coming out, even some additional ones in the direct acting oral anticoagulant field. So I think we're going to learn more about single anticoagulant therapy and, and DOAC. And we're actually going to have data next week that's going to pre be presented at the end of August this week, actually, for the European Society of Cardiology meeting that is going to focus on some of these things. That's just aims absolutely fantastic. And, and for the listeners here, like... <laughs> Every almost every single question that 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 Craig has talked about here is controversial in nature. And when we say controversial, it's that there's not a gold standard trial kind of saying for some of these things, this is what we need to be doing for all patients in a standard of care. That's there's a lot of gray area, a lot of ways for interpretation and things like that. So just keep that in mind as as you're listening and things, um, that this was <laughs> um these were kind of loaded questions, so I, I appreciate you playing along here with us. <laughs> yeah. No, it's just a lot of opportunity. To, and what I really encourage people, because we don't have time to go into all the nitty-gritties of the details and the literature and the evidence, but I encourage people to look at the data, learn about it, and how to apply it to their particular situation or what they're doing with, because it, it's all over the board. Mm-hmm. Now, it's hard to cover everything with cases, so there's a couple kind of potpourri type of questions here to, to end things out. So from a pharmacy perspective, I think a question um, that will commonly come up that will instantly, um, people will have reactions to either positively or negatively is the question of IV cangrelor, our parenteral antiplatelet agent. So my question is, in these patients who have um, devices. Are there specific circumstances where we need to be doing or using IV cangrelor, maybe in those situations where people can't take their oral antiplatelets, or, or is this kind of using cangrelor with devices maybe outside of when we should be appropriately using this agent? So I will definitely tell you they've not been studied for that. <laughs> for, or cangrelor has not been studied for, for that. But I think really you alluded to this is really looking at the patient scenario and saying we still need to give them DAP for whatever device or situation that you're looking for. And the only way that we can give it to them currently is to get this intravenously. And so I'm not saying never, but I will say that, you know, there may be some unique situations where you want to consider that. And, and so, you know, obviously the question then becomes what dosing strategy do you use? You know, because you, you know the the trial data is more of a short acute period in the cath lab versus you know we have the bridge data which is a lower dose and, and that is where you're going to get kind of stuck debating what is the best dose or the most appropriate strategy and there are no answers to that uh, from that particular perspective. I generally, if I have to use it longer term and not in acute setting, I hedge towards the bridge data and that's all extrapolation from from that particular perspective. And I think a lot of people do that. I think the real question ultimately becomes, you know, what is the, you know, how, how badly do I really need to use this and how long ago? I think you have to ask a lot of questions, like when was the device placed? What's the risk of thrombosis at this particular juncture if we hold it? You know, kind of really doing your due diligence and thinking out loud about it before immediately jumping to using IV cangrelor. 
So we've spent the majority of our discussion here talking about our mechanical circulatory support devices. And so one question I kind of wanted to ask, and I'm, and I'm not sure if we know, do we have published data showing that some of these devices may, you know, reduce mortality or help improve um, these patient outcomes? So definitely for the Impella device, they're doing uh, uh, the large shock trial that they're rolling for to help answer some of these questions. To, so we'll, we'll hopefully have a better feel for what the mortality reduction is with the Impella device in the future. But I think the, the struggle there is, again, these questions are not devised around specifically what are the pharmacies, you know, the anticoagulation role, the pharmacist perspective from that standpoint. But if you think about any trial or device that you're putting in there, you're going to balance the efficacy off with the safety, and the safety component is bleeding, right, and thrombosis, and a lot of that's directed by the anticoagulation piece of that. So I think we can still play a role in understanding that data and that piece behind the data as it comes out. But there are going to be some trials looking at that from that perspective for the Impella device. I don't think there there's not going to be uh, a lot of balloon pump studies coming down the line, and then we definitely know that the TAVR data is very strong in terms of reducing uh, mortality, and especially in patients who can't get aortic valve replacement surgery. And, of course, there's other devices that are going to be coming down the line looking at, right now we have tricuspid mitral valve repair that is already in existence with the mitral clip, but I think there's pretty constantly going to be data for a mitral valve replacement that's going to be transcatheter and probably have the same concerns and risk. And there's also tricuspid valve procedures coming down the line. So are there are there big studies on the horizon maybe related to focusing on like anticoagulation or antithrombotic management for some of these devices that we should be on the lookout for? I think the the biggest data that's coming out is all going to be related to our transcatheter therapies in terms of anticoagulation strategies. So you'll see a lot of movement there. You know, I, I won't say that there's going to be a large Impella-based studies, but I, like I alluded to, there's a lot of interest in how do we use these devices safer or more safely? And so I think there's exploration on what that looks like and what is the role and how do we monitor them and those types of things. So uh, to be to be continued from, from that perspective. And then obviously with Watchmen, you know, we're still learning a lot about that device and the use of it in the iteration. So I think you'll, you'll see some DOAC trials and those types of things continually come down the line. So, Craig, what would be some general advice or you know, things to consider or kind of big overarching points to kind of reemphasize in regards to managing kind of antiplatelets and anticoagulants in patients who have some, you know, a cardiac device? Yes, I think the big thing is depending on the device and what you're looking at, there's thrombotic risk, there's bleeding risk. The data is mixed for a lot of them. But probably the most robust data we have is with, like I said, the transcatheter valves. And you really need to you know, do your the data, put it in context, ask questions, uh, and, and do what you think is going to be the best for the, the patient. Well, this was an absolute blast and we can't, I can't have you come on without having a couple of fun questions towards the end. So sure. what is your favorite part about the bluegrass state, Kentucky? Because 
you went to school there, you trained there, you now work there. Yeah. I'm guessing there's got to be something in the water or something that's got that's got you bringing back. Well, I think it, you know those things have changed throughout time. You know, I think I definitely appreciate the bourbon, the basketball, the the people. I think the people in Kentucky are some of the nicest people I've always have ever met. And obviously now I'm partially biased. You know, my wife is from there and my kids have a relationship with the state. I think that, that has been a huge draw, but I, I definitely, uh, I think it, it's just the whole mentality. You have a lot of the best of both worlds from, you know, urban to horse farms to hiking. And, you know, if you transverse the entire state, it's, it's, it's a, a microcosm of a lot of different areas and, and backgrounds. So it's, it's pretty unique in my mind in that sense. What's your, cause I'm guessing you've, you've, you've gone to some of the distilleries on, on the bourbon trail, maybe mm-hmm. not done the whole bourbon trail. Is that a, is that an accurate assumption? I've done a, a good portion of it. I think, you know, they all have their unique, obviously flavor and not just a pun in the sense of each bourbon tastes differently. And that is true. And there's, you know, favorites and those types of things. I think their, their tours are, are uniquely different. Uh, you know, my favorite tour and experience, yeah. I think, is the Major's Mark tour. Mm-hmm. But I do love the Buffalo Space Distillery. Um, but I think, you know, they're all different in different regions and areas. And so it's, you know, I think that that's the fun of, of going on some of these, these adventures in, in the state. So Now, if anyone has had the pleasure of working with you or, you know, hearing you um, speak at kind of a, a local or national conference, I um most people would see that you wear and prefer bow ties over neckties. Now that yep. wasn't always the case. So what's your no, story on when you, on how, on how and why that changed yeah. and why you prefer bow ties? So I started in college or in pharmacy school. And I just was going to learn how to tie a bow tie based on a bucket list item. So I taught myself how to do it on YouTube. And at that point I was just wearing them casually here or there and then probably around the time, Nick, maybe you're at Centennial or somewhere, mm-hmm. maybe before that, I was doing chest compressions on a CT surgery patient, and I was wearing a tie that day, and my tie went into the sternal wound. And at that point forth, I was like, you know, bow ties don't have this problem, and I will forever go forth and wear bow ties and if I have to. That way, I, you know, I can still look nice, but not be creating an infection control risk by wearing a, a necktie. Uh, and so that's kind of where <laughs> we went down that tra- trajectory and here we are still wearing bow ties. What was the look of every, did, did, did other people recognize that that happened? Do you even know? Yeah, no, I mean, we tell it, they literally saw me take it off and immediately put it in the biohazard and my tie. I was like, uh, like, I was like, this, this is not going to work. So, but you know, it, I was, you know, it's one of those things I was like, I would do chest compressions. Like we were needing people. Is it? Yeah. So I just like jumped in there and was going to town. So, you know, Michael Scott staying alive style. <laughs> I, I make, I make all, all my students when we do ACLS, I make them watch that clip. I, I think it's just so, it's so chaotic. It almost gives them a glimpse into what like a, a code can be sometimes just pure chaos. Um, yeah. But that is, I, I'm, I'm glad you shared that story because you, you told me that when I was a resident and it always, it makes me laugh so much. And for those who haven't like tried to, to like tie a bow tie, the fact that you learned it, like you taught yourself is so impressive because actually trying to tie it is 
so hard. It's all determination. So just, <laughs> if you're determined to do something, set your mind to it. So. Uh, well, thank you so much for, for joining. Yeah, me no, today, thank you. Greg. This has been a pleasure. Uh, I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, I, I feel like this was a masterclass, and I, I had an absolute blast talking with you. Now, are you on Twitter, or how can how can the listeners reach, reach yeah, out so you to you? Follow me at Beavers B E A V R S Farm D, all one word, lowercase. At Beavers Farm D, that, that's who I am on Twitter. I try to post regularly. It's a great resource if you haven't started using social media to connect and network and keep up with things and events and and everything going on. You should definitely invest into it. Oh, that's, I really appreciate it. Um, thanks again. It's, it's always great talking no, and catching up with you, me. Craig. Yes, sir. Anytime. You'll have to come visit us in Kentucky. Yes. Mark it down. I, I definitely yeah. agree with that. I want to give another massive thank you to uh, Craig for joining me today. And then, you know, also want to give a massive thank you to you, the listeners. Um, this podcast you know, obviously doesn't exist without you. Uh, please send me feedback, both positive and negative, as well as any guest or topic ideas. Um, as we said, tried a little bit of a new format. So definitely let me know what you think. Did you like it? Hate it? Would you tweak it? Um, so Twitter, Instagram, at Pharmacy to Dose, that's T-O to Dose, or via email, pharmacy to Dose at gmail.com. And as always, on our website, pharmacy to Dose.com, you'll find show notes as well as a reference list. And, and those links are available on the website and are also embedded within every episode description. And so until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is Pharmacy to Dose, the Critical Care Podcast.